And I'm like, I'm not struggling with being a gay person. I'm struggling with being a female. There's a difference. Like, it, it wasn't that I was dating a woman. I had no problem with people seeing that I was dating a woman. I had a problem with being seen as a woman. And I, and I, I know that I can't ever be a biological male. I want to make that very, very clear. It's not a sense of, I can't acknowledge reality because I can't. It's a sense of me acknowledging my reality makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And I would rather do what I can medically and otherwise to appear like a man, even though I'm not one. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Hey, I don't normally record separate introductions to my interviews, but upon listening to this one, I thought a few points deserved clarification up front. I go into many conversations blind and unscripted. I've learned that sometimes the results of this can upset certain listeners, impress others, and many listeners don't seem to notice or care. However you may think or feel about this, I went into my conversation with Jamie not knowing much about her besides the fact that she has an interesting perspective based on her unique experiences with cerebral palsy and gender dysphoria. So I proceeded carefully and referred to her as transsexual because this is the terminology she uses. I also use the gender-neutral pronoun they at times, although I normally use pronouns based on biology, not metaphysics. Now that I've gotten to know Jamie and had some time to reflect on our conversation, I would say that Jamie is a woman living with gender dysphoria. I don't believe the term transsexual fits, as that term normally refers to people who have had hormones and surgeries to try to mimic the appearance of the opposite sex, and as I learned through our conversation, Jamie has not had any such medical procedures. I believe Jamie is a thick-skinned, open-minded, intelligent, and resilient young woman who can tolerate differences of opinion and will respect my choice to refer to her as a woman in line with her biological sex, regardless of her persistent experience of gender dysphoria. I believe she will also respect my choice to refer to her as someone with gender dysphoria rather than a transsexual. I appreciated Jamie's courage and candor in sharing about her life experiences as a gay disabled woman with gender dysphoria who has, for reasons you will hear her articulate soon, chosen neither to medicalize her distress nor to reject people with gender critical views such as myself. I hope you'll find our conversation as touching and enlightening as I did. Thank you for listening. Today I get to interview someone with a very unique story. I am so excited to learn more. My guest is Jamie. We know each other from Twitter. Jamie has cerebral palsy. Um, Jamie is a transsexual who welcomes viewpoint diversity and engages with people like me on the internet um, and is critical of how the current healthcare system works for transsexuals and is also a writer both at um, their blog, as well as working on a fiction novel. So Jamie, welcome. Thanks for coming to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So 
There's so much I want to learn about you. Prior to recording, I let you know that I started to read your story, um, but I I haven't finished it yet. So there's a lot of unknowns that are going to come up. Um, you've you've expressed that one of your concerns with uh, the way that gender is currently treated in the medical system is how experimental it is on children. And you're coming at this with a unique perspective, not only as a transsexual yourself, but as someone who has experimented on as a child in the attempts to treat your cerebral palsy and the medical complications that came with it. Now, I, I imagine that so many parts of your story are really vulnerable, and yet you seem like you're in a better place than ever. You're optimistic and you're ready to share your story. So of course, at any point in the way, along the way, if something gets too difficult, we're going to, we're going to stop. But, uh, I admire your courage and your openness to dialogue. So please let's just go ahead and get started. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, what it was like for you growing up? Um, from, from the beginning, my story is one of sheer perseverance, sheer force of will. Uh, I was born at 25 weeks gestation and I was a micro preemie. Um, and I was also a twin. And basically what that means in terms of my medical situation is that I suffered a severe brain hemorrhage and wound up with this thing that we call cerebral palsy. And uh, it, it affects my legs mainly. I walk a little bit weird, but cognitively, for the for the amount of damage that I sustained, to be able to sit here talking to you the way that I am and be clearly understood uh, is really it, it's it's a medical miracle. We we were so early uh, that the medical staff said to my parents, "Your children need names for the death certificates because we don't think that they are going to survive." And so they gave us you know. Our, our birth names and my twin brother and I, our names were actually paired at the beginning. My birth name was Amy. And so if my name is spelled a little weird, that's why, because I wanted to honor where I came from. And I grew up fairly normally for a disabled kid, which is an achievement in and of itself. Uh, I have, I had three um, siblings, an older brother, obviously a twin, and then a younger sister. But they were all able-bodied. Like for my twin brother to not have any disabilities or any issues whatsoever is amazing. But I, I grew up sort of seeing in every kind of capacity what my life would have been like if I were able-bodied. And by the time I was four, um, my body was burning so much energy naturally that my parents decided um, to implant a pump that would release a muscle relaxant so that I could gain weight, feel when I had to go to the bathroom, just general functioning. It, it relaxes my muscles enough so that I can go out and, and live. And that's for life. Those surgeries are routine every five to eight years. Um, and they're not easy surgeries at all. It's weeks of recovery, and that's a choice that was made for me. But it, it was it was the best choice. So I'm still working through my feelings about what was done to me as a little kid. And you said on your blog that you you couldn't have consented to these procedures. 
you also described this feeling of being born in the wrong body, which is a popular narrative, as anyone who's following the gender issue well knows. It's a popular narrative about the experience of transsexuals. And many gender critical people have said, well, if you know someone who was born in a perfectly healthy body is saying that they were born in the wrong body just because it's male or female, what are the implications of that for people who were born with disabilities? And here you were, someone who grew up feeling like your body, like there was something wrong with your body, and there was something wrong with your body. Your body wasn't functioning for you the way that your siblings' bodies were functioning for them and other kids were for them. So can you talk about this experience of feeling like you were in the wrong body? What was that like as a child? And then did what's the relationship between those feelings about your disability and the feelings about your your sex or gender? I thought pretty much by the time I was five uh, that I was in the wrong body because of my disability. And I, it took me about, you know, 10 or so years to sort of go through all the normal teenage things and, and especially coming into your body as a disabled person and like, having ownership of your body and feeling good about your body, those are really rare experiences for us. You throw puberty on top of that and it just throws everything that you knew sort of out of the way and you have to renegotiate with your body again. And the feeling that my body was wrong, I I honestly don't know where it came from. It's been there from my earliest memories. But it was, it was distinctly not sexed. It was not gendered. I've thought about it and thought about it. And I've tried to find, you know, one instance in my childhood where I went to my parents and said that I really was a boy or that I should have been a boy. And I didn't have that experience. But I think part of the reason I didn't have that experience was because I was not able to go out and play with the other kids in the same way all the time. When I was young, like five, six, seven, it was different because kids are not as active. You know, girls are willing to sort of sit and play make believe with you, and boys are sort of willing to like sit and play video games with you. And my brothers were great about it. But as you age and as you get older and more active, the other kids just kind of go off and do their own thing. And when you're like me, you can't run around and play like cops and robbers. You you have to figure out a way to interact with the other kids in a socially appropriate, age-appropriate way. And so there was this sense always throughout my childhood up to puberty where I never got to connect with my body in the way that an able-bodied child normally would. I wasn't using it in the same way. I wasn't, you know, doing a lot of the other things that the kids around me were doing. And so I sort of developed a a sense of self separate from my body. Mm. Sex and gender really didn't enter the conversation until puberty. And and even then it was kind of like, oh, you know, my sex is female. That's really how I took it. I didn't didn't feel a, a real love or hate for it. It just kind of was what it was. Did you feel trapped in your body? Oh, every day, um, every day and until, until I was about, you know, 23, I think is the age where I really made peace with the body that I have. Took me, took me a long time, but 
I remember vividly, uh, especially as a teenager, getting up every morning and thinking to myself, oh, this is the only body I'm ever going to get. And I feel completely trapped in it. I feel completely not represented. I feel disgust when I look at my body. And this was without... Um, this was without taking into account the normal pubertal changes, which I also didn't like. So there was already this sense of like, this is my body in the sense that it's the one that I have, but I don't feel any connection to it. I don't feel any particular love toward it. If I could change it, I would. You know, it it just was a very, very different experience. And it took me a long time to connect with other disabled people and realize that that's really normal for us. But for everybody around us, that's very abnormal and even like worrying. <laughs> I can imagine when you're a child who can't take health for granted mm-hmm. that it's, I, I don't think it's natural for kids to spend a whole lot of time thinking about sex and gender outside of our current cultural climate. I had imagined that you would have been happy to wake up in a body that was male or female, but that could run and play and catch and throw. And Yeah, I, I remember a lot of moments as a little kid um, watching the other kids like run around and realizing like, oh, I don't get to do that. Like, I'm feeling yeah. sad, you know. Um, and I, I've, I've gotten over that as I've gotten older, but for a little kid, and especially when you bring in the medical expectations that were put on me. You're, you're sort of living life in between um, medical interventions. At least I was. That's so heavy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Do you need a sip of water? Uh, sure. <laughs> Childhood is ideally a time when when we can take health for granted mm-hmm. enough to explore and discover and engage and have joy, have have some time that is carefree. And right from the beginning, you had to learn some, I'd imagine, very adult ways of coping. I think as adults, we're naturally much better than children at, you know, just buckling down when we have to go through some uncomfortable medical procedure. But that was your life from day one. Yeah, I I can remember um, particularly the, the pump that I have, just to give your listeners some sort of context, um, it releases a, a liquid medication. There are pills available, but they're a much lower dosage and a much lower concentration. And for the severity of my disability, that pump is the best option. But in order to refill it, um, you have to get a needle in your abdomen every six months. So, and when I was younger, it was more frequent, three to four months. So trying to explain to a little kid, hey, I know you don't like needles, but you have to do this medical procedure. Oh, and by the way, you're not allowed to be 
sort of emotional about it. I mean, my parents were the best that they could have been about it. They really tried to make it an easy experience for me, but they were upfront with me. They, they, were, they talked to me like I was an adult rather than a kid. And they basically said, uh, you have to learn how to manage your emotions around all of this because we can't help you. Like once they sat me down and were like, so the reason you're in a chair is not because of your physical legs, but because of your brain damage. That was devastating for me because I had spent that, that period of time thinking to myself, like any kid would, you know, magical thinking, thinking that I would get up one morning and there would be something that would help me to go and be like everybody else. And when I realized that I wasn't going to be like everybody else, that really took a toll on me emotionally. And as I aged, unfortunately, um, mm. the medical situation got more and more precarious. Um, one of the issues that you have with medicalization like mine is that as good as the medical technology is, the humans implementing it and creating it and like managing it are as susceptible to human error as any of us. Right. And when I was 12, um, I went to get my pump replaced because you got to get it replaced every couple of years. And we did not know that the pump had been leaking medication. And so when they put the new pump in and programmed it with my original dose, I ended up uh, medically overdosing. And I was like days away from a medically induced coma. And that was the first of two overdoses uh, in my sort of teenage years. And, and things like that just sort of reinforced to me that I was never going to be like anybody else. I was never going to fit anywhere. I was never going to be comfortable with my body because how can you be when you have every physician you can imagine saying to you, do you want to do this surgery? Do you want to do this surgery? Do you want to do this intervention? Are you keeping up with therapy and doing all these things multiple times a week? Like I would get pulled out of school to do physical therapy, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but by the time I was in middle school, I was in uh, honors classes. So the workload was much, much heavier. There was much more expected of me. And I had to fit physical therapy around my school schedule. And I loved school. I loved being in the advanced classes. I loved the rigor. I loved all of it. And I just, I just wanted to have a normal school experience. And a lot of the time, I was the only disabled kid that was of that particular intelligence level in those classes. And the other disabled children that I knew were special education um, users. So, I mean, my, my experience was just so different. And you throw in, you know, all the normal, like middle school, high school issues, like cliques, and particularly for teenage girls, the drama of not having a friend group. I had nobody to like sit with at lunch for three years of high school. And I got into some situations uh, by the time I was 13, 14, that 
were not normal, I guess is the best way to describe them. Because of your vulnerability? Uh, because I was recognizing that I am a really emotionally intense person and a really sensitive person. And it would be one thing if I were really emotional and sensitive without all of the pressures that were being put on me to sort of go through life normally. Um, but to be as emotional and as sensitive as I was and then try to go out and make friends with people and have them reject me again and again and again and again. And I remember my mom saying to me, um, you know, right before I started high school, you know, just, just go up to people and start conversations with them and they'll see that you're like everybody else. And I remember thinking to myself when she said that to me that they're not going to see that I'm like everybody else. They're going to know that I'm not like everybody else and they're not going to want to be my friend. And that was really, that was all I wanted. I wanted community. I wanted friends. And um, I, I was really lucky, really, really lucky to go to summer camps for children with disabilities. So that was how I made my friends. Like that was, those were the people that I hung around when I could. And we, the bond that we have, not just because we share diagnoses, but because we share life experiences and jokes and intelligence levels and like general ways of being in the world. That was, that was what I clung to as a kid. But I spent most of my time in primarily able-bodied spaces like school. So I was always feeling like I don't fit anywhere. I don't fit anywhere. I don't fit anywhere. And um, at 13, I, I'm trying to decide how I want to word this because I don't want I don't want you to think that it was a, a choice that I made because I can look back now as an adult and say that it was not a choice, but um, I started uh, self-harming at 13. So, and that was, that was my attempt to sort of control my emotions and control my sensitivity. If I didn't show people that I was upset with my situation, they didn't say anything to me. And I was like, oh, so it, if I'm not showing them emotions, if I'm not crying in front of them, if I'm showing them anger instead, you know, or if I'm, if I'm stonewalling them and not giving them any emotional feedback, they won't say anything to me about it and the awkwardness will sort of resolve. And so um, self-injury became the thing that helped me to sort of control what was going on in my head. And that's a terrible choice to make, by the way. Um, if you have the option, I would not recommend it. Uh, but it, it followed me for, gosh, four or five years of cutting and then relapsing, cutting and then relapsing. And then um, as time went on, I was open with my parents about it because they knew that something was wrong. They said to me, okay, you know, you're not allowed to, to do that, obviously. And I, I thought to myself, gosh, what am I going to do to manage my emotional state, you know? Um, and this was around the time where my, my spasms, which is what the medicine sort of controls, 
had slowed down enough to where I was putting on like weight. But my parents were concerned because, you know, what what parent wants their disabled child to be unhealthy? And so they were like, you need to make sure that you manage your weight. You need to make sure that you're being really active. And I took their sort of instruction and combined it with what I was feeling emotionally, which was trapped and developed bulimia as a result. And then that sort of um, occurred at the same time as the self-injury. So my teenage years were absolutely brutal for anybody, let alone a, a disabled kid. And it, it just shaped a lot of how I approach my life now because my my concern always is am i doing harm to myself because i know what it is to do harm to my body even if i don't feel connected to it and that's sort of what i've taken from that experience if you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy irritable lethargic stressed out or unfocused I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, Look no further, I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm gonna genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. It sounds like an excruciatingly lonely way to grow up and so heavy. And thinking about all the ways that your body was well, felt like not your own, felt out of your control. Um, It makes sense that you would dissociate and that you would need to develop a life of the mind, which I want to explore with you more because it sounds like that started off one way but has has grown throughout your life. Um, And it it also makes sense. And when we talk about the self-harm, there's there's many reasons why people self-harm and yours make a lot of sense that you were looking for a way to control your feelings and and do something with that pain that was inside and I'm also imagining you know 
as an adolescent, when when your whole life growing up, your body had felt invaded, um, you you might have cognitively grasped to the degree that it's even possible for a child that, okay, my parents and doctors are telling me that this is what we have to do to protect my health. But your actual experience was I'm having needles stuck in me and I'm cut open and, and all of these kinds of things. So it would it would also make sense to me if the self-harm was partly a way of taking control of, well, if I'm if I'm gonna be in pain, if I'm gonna be punctured and cut and harmed, at least I'm the one doing it. Yeah, that that absolutely was what it was for me. And especially um I said this to my mother at the time that all this was occurring, and I still stand by it, which is when I was growing up and going through the world and realizing that outside of my family who loved me and appreciated me and recognized that I was like everybody else, the rest of the world stared at me like I was, you know, like there's majorly something wrong with me or they would, their their kids would stare at me and they would pull their kids away and kids would be like, what's wrong with her, you know? And it, it, was this feeling of everybody looks at me as a little disabled girl and there is so much more to my life and so much more that I can give and that is not being recognized or respected. Uh, It's a very common feeling for disabled people to have, but most of my friends who who are now adults, you know, they sort of grew up around other disabled people and I didn't. I had interludes where I would go and be with them and be in in that community, but I didn't have the normal, you're in a disabled, you know, class, you're in a a special school, you're in community um, happenings and things like that. It it was very, very different. And it, it just became, it became too much for me to try and prove everyone wrong all the time. And I think the the feeling of wanting to control how other people perceive me has only intensified. And it's not it's not something that I was consciously trying to do either as I grew up. It was a sense of they're going to be looking at me anyway. Mm-hmm. And they're getting so much wrong <laughs> about mm. my life and me as a person. Mm-hmm. It's hard to live with a, a sense of needing to prove yourself. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about how trying to control how other people see you is not good for anyone's mental health because mm-hmm. there's so much that's outside of our control. But for you, this must have been ex- exceptionally difficult because you're not just saying, oh, I want people to see me as an attractive person or as a fun person or as one sex or another, you, you were wanting people to see you as a person with a, a brain and a, a personality, a, a person with thoughts, <laughs> because by being visibly, physically disabled, so many people throughout your life just made an assumption that you weren't all there mentally either or that you weren't somebody they could relate with. And that seems like such an understandable thing to want. Yeah, I I remember um, 
when I was in middle school, particularly, I remember this because every year before the school year started, I would go and meet with my teachers and sort of introduce myself and tell them this is what I have on my IEP. And it was very basic stuff, like an extra set of textbooks or whatever. But um, I remember they wanted to put me in the special ed classroom just because of the wheelchair, not because of my cognitive ability, not because of my you know, physical needs or whatever, just because I was in a wheelchair, they wanted to put me in um, a, a special ed sort of homeroom, I guess. And I ended up testing out of some of my classes and going on to like advanced placement and stuff. And I said to them, I am not being put, no offense, but I am not being put in a special ed homeroom. I want to take the PSATs. I want to take the regular SATs. I want to go to college and and I have the ability to do that. So change my, you know, homeroom or situation or whatever. And they did, you know, but it was this constant sense, especially in high school. Um, I had had an aid, a physical aid up until that point that would like carry my books and open doors and do all the physical stuff so that I could get through the day and I got to a point by the time I was 14 where um, I wanted my independence and I wanted to be my own person, like every other adolescent who's ever been an adolescent. But it was this sense of like sitting my, you know, teachers and family down in the IEP meeting and saying, when I transition to high school, I don't want an aid. I want to do everything myself. And my parents were like, are you sure? Because you've had an aid up until this point, blah, blah, blah. And I said, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I need to at least try to see if I can make it on my own. Because you keep telling me that there's not going to be anybody there when I'm in college. And I want to be successful. And that move that I pushed for is the reason that I was able to go to college independently and graduate and I never really needed any of the physical services that so many of my adult friends have needed because I forced myself to integrate as much as I could into the able-bodied world that I was already in. And it was, especially as a, as a late teenager, 16, 17, I, I was a very late bloomer for obvious reasons. Um, I, I hate to, uh, to, to burst your bubble here, as far as you know, how disabled relationships work and how love works in our community, sort of. But we're not really seen as desirable as partners. It, it's something that nobody wants to really talk about. It, it's this thing that parents like want for their kids. But for us to go out and find somebody who wants to be with us, it's a lot. You you have to be upfront. You have to be okay with the fact that you're in a disabled body. You have to educate your partner. You have to sort of, you have to sort of teach them how to be with you, I guess is the best way I can describe it. And so I wasn't the kid that was getting invited to parties as a teenager. I wasn't the kid that was getting um, asked out on dates. I, I sort of avoided the whole thing. And so by the time I was 16 or 17, I was realizing, oh my gosh, I'm gay top of it and that was <laughs> that was something that my parents were not expecting obviously but for me it was just like oh great now I have this to deal with too and it's being being the gay kid in high school 
you know, it's not the best. But being the kid that nobody expects to be gay <laughs> in high school is really, really um, difficult. It's it's very difficult. And and getting other teenagers and young adults to see you as just as much of a sexual person is difficult as well. So when you say nobody expected you to be gay, it's because they see you as someone with a disability, not someone with everything else that makes a person human, including a sexuality. Yeah, it's part of it is the disability. Obviously, there's there's an asexualization of disabled people that goes on, that continues to go on, um, that, that disabled adults are not seen as real men or women, which I think is so interesting and so pertinent to the whole gender thing. Um, but it took me a very long time to get my partners and get my family to understand that I am just as much of an adult. My hormones are pretty much fine. Like everything works the way that it's supposed to work. And the fact that I ended up gay is really not that big of a deal in hindsight. So that experience was um, really difficult because my father looked at me and said, oh, you've never been with a man, how would you know? And my mother looked at me and said, you know, some, some variant of, I don't agree with you being gay. And so I had to sort of teach my parents, this is what it is to be a, a homosexual. This is what it is to fall in love with somebody of the same sex. And it's not just about sexual relationships. It's about love and, and having a partner and all the things that straight people want. So adult of you, just like <laughs> the way that you handled so many other things, going and introducing yourself to your teachers, explaining your disability to them. You just had to grow up so quickly. And I just have this image of the vulnerability of going from being a preemie to this young adult and that that being trapped in your body, your mind developed very intensely, developed what I'm hearing actually a very strong will to live despite everything you've been through. And and you did say that you're a survivor of a suicide attempt and we'll get to that if, if that's all right when that comes sure. up. But I mean, I'm hearing that you really took on the responsibility of um, fighting for yourself, of educating people. And, you know, many people with disabilities and people who are transsexual and, you know, other marginalized demographics um, spend a lot of time and energy being very reactive uh, to the world not conforming to their standards. But I'm hearing you you didn't have the luxury of doing that. You grew up quickly. You took responsibility for educating those around you, even though it was lonely, even though you must have felt like a victim at so many points along the way. And, and you talk about you know, now having the realization, well, not just the realization, but you're at a time in life when you accept your sexuality and you know it's not a big deal to be gay and, and you're happily married. So congratulations on that. But at the same time, you also talk about how um, people with disabilities have a much smaller dating pool and gay people also have a much smaller dating pool. So to find, you know, both um, partners who are same sex attracted um, and who are open to dating people with disabilities, that's that's unique 
struggle. And I can imagine that it makes you, I mean, on the one hand, it puts you in a very vulnerable position when you're single. And on the other hand, it really would make you appreciate love so much more. Yeah, I, I remember um, vividly as a as a teenager thinking about the rest of my life and realizing, is anyone ever going to love me? You know, because I didn't see people with disabilities going and getting married and having lives. And I'm sure it was happening. I just didn't know about it. I didn't see it. And so for so long, what I wanted was the, the, whole, the whole nine yards. I wanted the happy marriage, the kids, the dog, you know, the successful adult relationship that everybody wants. But I didn't see it. And so I realized quite quickly um, as a little, you know, as, as, a, as a coming out, you know, gay kid that I would have to fight for what I knew was right for my life. I remember looking my mother in the eye and saying to her, if I'm going to marry somebody, it's going to be because I love them and not for any other reason. And to have to do that at an age where I had had no romantic or sexual experiences. I had had nothing, no frame of reference. But to know at that age, like, this is what I want and I'm going after it. It's still... It's still amazing to me. <laughs> when did you meet your now wife? We met when I was uh, 20, 21, right around there. So I say often that I waited my whole life for her because I did. <laughs> and you're 25 now. Yeah. So we've been together a um, couple years and we've been married about a year. So. Why? Well, I- a part of me wants to go there right now in your love story, but I know there's there's much more to the picture. When did gender identity come into the picture for you? Um, as soon as I hit puberty at around 10, I realized, I realized there's a picture of me. The day that I got my uh, first period, my mother sat me down and like took a picture to kind of celebrate me entering womanhood, you know? Um, and it was just me. I remember vividly me with my hands up going like, please, you know, save me from this. I remember that very, very vividly. The feeling of dread, the feeling of, oh God, this is not okay. This is not right. I know this is how my body is supposed to develop. I've had sex ed classes, but this is wrong. And I don't know why. (laughs) Well, I mean, my my first thoughts, my initial impressions, and you can say whatever you want in response to this. But I mean, first of all, you went through precocious puberty at 10. And I can imagine anyone getting, I mean, I I had my first period at 12 and that was bad. I think most females, whether they get their period at, you know, 12 or 14, it's Nobody likes it. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's very painful. Well, it's not painful for everyone. It's very anxiety provoking for everyone. Painful for many of us. Embarrassing. Can feel like your body's out of your control. And you were accustomed to a life of feeling like your body's out of your control. So mm-hmm. between what's normal about that and the fact that it happened in an early age and everything you'd been through, I mean, that sounds like totally what I would expect. But but when did 
when did you start to conceptualize your distress as related to gender dysphoria or the sense that there's a mismatch or that you were, you know, I mean, you talked about earlier in life feeling like you were born in the wrong body, but not because of gender, because of your disability. So when did this idea that you were supposed to be male, or I'm not even sure if that's how you would put it, help me out. Uh, I I wouldn't put it like that, actually. It was more of a sense of, by, by the time I was roughly 18, 19, I actually came to realize, oh, I think I would be happier living sort of on the other side. But I realized that because I had spent my entire life um, trying to do the female thing, trying to do the woman thing in whatever way that I could. And like, as a young gay kid, I was a butch woman, like very butch, like, like passing for a man on the street, butch. And it was the sense of, I'm around more butch women, you know, and I'm supposed to be able to relate to them. I'm supposed to be able to relate to gay women. I'm supposed to be settling into myself. And instead, what I feel is, this isn't right either. The sense that I should just be a butch woman and that should be enough for me. I just kept getting more and more and more and more uncomfortable with my body, especially when I started having... um, gay relationships and and gay sexual experiences, the things that I thought were going to help me to settle into myself as a gay person actually just made it worse. Made it worse? Yes. Yes. How? Um, I remember the, the one girl that I dated before I ended up meeting my wife was very, very attached to the idea of me as a butch woman. Like, when I passed for male out in social situations, which happened, you know, somewhat frequently, she would get mad at me. She'd be like, you're a woman. Why aren't you correcting them? And then she would, you know, try to be intimate with me. And it was it was this sense of, I have to go out of my body to be able to be intimate with this person because I don't want them to see what I have. I, I don't want them to touch me in certain places. And I had tried to be like, hey, can you not do this or can you not? And she's like, why are you why are you struggling so much with being a gay person? And I'm like, I'm not struggling with being a gay person. I'm struggling with being a female. There's a difference. Like it it wasn't that I was dating a woman. I had no problem with people seeing that I was dating a woman. I had a problem with being seen as a woman. And so I started not only reading uh, stuff from other butch women, but reading stuff from from transsexuals, from female to male transsexuals. Started reading medical papers. Everything that I could find, I read. And I realized that the, the, the designation of homosexual transsexual actually really fit what it was that I wanted to to be. And I, and I, I know that I can't ever be a biological male. I want to make that very, very clear. It's not a sense of I can't acknowledge reality because I can't. It's a sense of me acknowledging my reality makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And I would rather do what I can medically and otherwise, to appear like a man, even though I'm not one. Can I 
ask, and and this is all really vulnerable, and you've you've been able to talk about some vulnerable things with both emotion and groundedness throughout this conversation. So I, I applaud your courage in that and respect any limits that might come up. But as we are talking about this really sensitive subject, you talk about trying to be intimate with your girlfriend and not being able to tolerate your own body. Can I ask, what was the worst part of being female trying to be with your girlfriend? Um, the worst part was that she, she objectively thought that the body that I had was something that was desirable. And I remember thinking, I wish that I could be comfortable with you because I know that you don't want to go out and date men. And feeling like I was lying to her, like being intimate with her. And then as soon as she fell asleep or whatever, like crying because I was like, I, I want to be seen and and respected as a man. I'd like to change my body. Everything that you like about me in that way, I, I don't want to have, and I don't want you to touch me. And I want to impose these physical boundaries, but I don't know how to do it. It, it, it was, it was the sense of like, no matter how I've tried to be in the world, I don't fit anywhere. I'm trying to be a butch woman and I'm not even butch enough to be able to accept my own body. Like, I think you were so accustomed to that, so accustomed to not belonging anywhere and so accustomed to not feeling desirable. And here, maybe for the first time in your life, uh, a, a female who you desire I mean, it's funny to call her that, a, a woman or a, a girl who who you wanted actually wanted you back as you were. And, and I can imagine that feeling so, like just such a huge cognitive dissonance there with how you'd felt about your body and how people had treated you for your whole life. Yeah. And, and looking back, obviously, first relationships are rarely ever long-term relationships. So there were other issues. And I, I got out of that relationship recognizing that, no, you know, I'm not going to hold back when talking about my physical boundaries. I'm not going to hold back when saying, hey, that makes me uncomfortable. And so in a way, it, it was something that helped me because I had a frame of reference for being with someone intimately. And I could say to my, you know, future partners, this is how I want you to approach me. This is what I'm comfortable with. Let me know if you can deal with that. And it made it much, much easier for me to, to sort of move forward. But by the time that relationship ended, I just was done, I think is the best way that I can describe mm -hmm. it. I, I felt I had been reading more, you know, non-binary type of stuff. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I've been reading about this transsexual thing, but that involves all this medical stuff that I don't know that I'm going to be able to do. And maybe non-binary is the way that I can be comfortable. So that's what I did. I came out as non-binary, did the whole public Facebook post type thing and did that for about a year. And um, by the end of that year, I had met the woman who had become my wife and realized, no, this actually isn't enough. I'm still extremely dysphoric. I need to go 
and transition to, to live as a dude. So it, it to answer your previous question about how did your how did your sense of like gender identity, I guess is the phrase that you used, how did that develop? It took me like two decades to, to figure out that gender was the thing that I was dealing with, at least in part. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I'm going to ask you a really personal question and you can can turn it down or take it wherever you want. Um, but when you talked about having these physical boundaries, which I think everyone should be aware of their physical boundaries when it comes to sexual encounters with other people, um, you didn't want to be touched in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Did you want to be the one doing the touching? Did you feel more comfortable when your body was off limits, but, but did you want to be with her? By focusing on her? No. It, it's a rare thing, actually, among among butch women that a, a butch woman like me would be comfortable with receiving intimately. And I've never had an issue with that. What I had an issue with was, oh, you know, focusing on, for example, my breasts. You know, that's a very female sexual thing. And if you're in my case, a, a transsexual, you have gender issues, of course you're not going to want to focus on that part of your body. It, it was more of a sense of, do you see me as a woman when we're intimate, or do you see me as a man, or sort of in between? And I, I had the opportunity, I'm actually really glad that I had the opportunity to be with somebody who saw me as a woman, actually, because that told me immediately, oh, that doesn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. And that was a piece of the gender puzzle, I guess. So that's what okay, I can describe so for it. About a ye- for about a year, you decided you were non-binary, and then you decided you were trans. And 
what happened next? Did you pursue any medical stuff for that? As of right now, um, I'm three years into my social transition, one year into my legal transition. I've not pursued anything medical because of my uh, disability and medical history and all the variables that are contained there. When I started mm -hmm. looking at it, I, re I knew that it was experimental medicine. And I said to myself, oh, that's interesting. I have this whole history of being a medical experiment and dealing with all the emotions that that brings with it. And I think I can handle this. And I called my dad because he and I are really close. And I said to him, you know, this is what I want to do. This is how I would feel most comfortable. You know that I've struggled with my body my whole life. And I've always been fairly masculine and this is how I want to live. And I'm an adult, you know, and I have the ability to do that. Basically advocating for myself. He said to me, but you would be on the bleeding edge. You would be an experiment and you've already been an experiment. Do you really want to go through that again? And he said to me words that I will never forget, which was, you need to look at detransitioners. You need to look at people that have transitioned and then realized it wasn't for them and then gone back to living as their birth sex. And had he not said that to me, I don't think I would be at the place in my life, the healthy place in my life, and in my transition where, you know, if I end up medically transitioning and it doesn't work, and I end up detransitioning, I can say with all sincerity that that's not a big deal to me because detrans people are my friends now. Like, I talk to them about everything. And... It was, it's, it's been a really interesting journey not pursuing medicalization from a social perspective, from a legal perspective. I'm having all sorts of issues because the system as it is currently set up doesn't handle people like me very well. <laughs> so. So you, how do you identify I, I'm a female to male transsexual. I don't identify as anything. It's a, to okay. me, to me, to be a transsexual, you have to have severe, um, severe dysphoria enough to where you want to live as, or as close to the opposite sex as possible. Mm -hmm. it, it's more of a mental health condition for me than it is a, a thing that you do, I guess. Yeah. So then, I mean, I, I actually don't like the phrase identify as either. I'm just trying to find a common language for exploring this very unique conversation we're having. And <laughs> I mean, would you, is it fair to describe you as someone living with gender dysphoria? Yes. I, I would say sex dysphoria um, mm -hmm. because gender, gender is social. We don't really have we, we don't really have much control over social gender and societal mm -hmm. gender norms. Those have been around for forever and if we want to change them that's certainly something we should do as a society but mm -hmm. that's not the discomfort that I feel I don't feel discomfort with societal gender norms I feel mm -hmm. discomfort with my actual observable biological sex so and, I and say sex disorder. most specifically it sounds like with having breasts um to be honest with you I feel uncomfortable with the whole the whole package I mean as we're sitting here talking I am hyper aware of my voice, my face, mm. just every 
every inch of this body, essentially. Mm. And I use breasts as an example because that's what most people think of. It's a way to sort of bridge the gap between their understanding and my understanding. But Mm -hmm. if I had a way to medically transition safely and not as an experiment, I would be on testosterone. I would be preparing Mm -hmm. for a double mastectomy. Mm -hmm. I, I would do anything to be able to do that. But as it currently stands, I can't even change my insurance information to my legal name because they want me to change my legal sex on my health insurance. And I was very clear with them. And I said, because of the nature of the medical care that I receive, that marker needs to remain female. Is there any way to just update the name? And they said, no, we've never had anybody ask that question. We've never had anybody do that before. We can't help you. You have to change your sex marker. Okay. That is really important. Um, you, You understand medical stuff from personal experience in a way that few people do. And you understand the importance of doctors understanding that you're female. I, I want to point out a couple of things. I mean, you're so accustomed to being an outlier. And, mm-hmm. and so I love that I get to interview you because there's nobody's story who's like yours. And out of all, all the ways that you're accustomed to being an outlier, you know, you you say that you're a FTM transsexual, but I, I, I see two differences between you and most people who you would think of when you think of FTM transsexuals. One is that unlike a lot of people who call themselves that, you understand that you're biologically female and that it's not possible to change sex, that you will never be male. You can't change every cell of your body. You understand that. And also when you say that you're transsexual, um, you haven't undergone medical interventions, which I think most people, when we think transsexual, we think people who have undergone medical uh, transitions. So Really, for you, it's about the social transition. But again, what makes you an outlier there is that unlike many people who socially transition, you're not trying to control how other people see you. I mean, on the one hand, you want to be seen. You wish you could be seen as male. You don't like your voice. You don't like various features that you have. But on the other hand, you're talking to people like me, right? Whereas a lot of Mm -hmm. transsexuals would, you know dogpile me and dox me and cancel me if they could. Um, and so on the one hand, it's like you you wish to be seen as male, but you also understand that that's unrealistic and that you can't control other people's perceptions of you. And you have this maturity about you, this internal locus of control that you're determined to live your best life regardless of what you can and cannot change about other people. So help me and, and help our listeners understand all of those kind of um, dissonant pieces of who you are. I I realized um, as soon as medical transition became something that I wanted, because I went back and forth for quite a while trying to figure out, is this something that I want? Is this something that I can live without? Um, I, I come from a medical space, obviously, where the, the last thing that you do is medication like invasive medication and and surgeries. That's the last resort. That is the model that I was raised in and raised on. And my body is proof of that. And so seeing how invasive and how intense testosterone and surgeries are, my first thing was, is there any way that I can manage this without the medical piece? And so because I didn't see a future for myself, 
you know, tying that piece back with, you know, my experiences as a kid and a teenager not seeing a future. You, you cannot be what you cannot see. And so I started reading about trans history, reading about trans men, trying to find one who had a similar experience to me. And I found a, a trans man by the name of Dr. Alan Hart. He transitioned all the way back in 1918 before testosterone was even synthesized and given to people to use to transition. And at the time, all you had to do to, to legally and otherwise transition as a female was have a hysterectomy. So he did that, went and got his paperwork changed, lived as a man for about 20 years successfully, and was a very successful physician. And then by the time testosterone was synthesized and available for public use, he did medically transition. But it took him a, a long period of time to figure out how he was going to do it without those resources available to him. And in my case, most trans people that I talk to, most trans activists that I talk to, the first thing that they say to me when they meet me is, well, you're not really trans. You didn't medicalize. And I'm like, well, being trans is not just about the medical piece. It is an option given to us, but it is not everything there's social transition, there's legal transition, and there's the medical piece. And most people start with the medical and then do social and legal. I did it the other way around because I want to give myself enough time to where if I go into an endocrinologist's office and ask him about testosterone and what it's going to do to my body with its health issues, he can tell me with a fair degree of certainty. You know, if I am going to do this for life, I want it to be streamlined. I want it to be well thought out in, in the way that I've experienced medicine previously. And earlier you said it's important that you are listed as female in the medical system. Why is that important? It's important because um, every cell of your body has a sex, first of all, um, but also because if you're in a medical emergency and you can't advocate for yourself, your medical team should know all of the relevant information about you from previous doctors, previous providers, any surgeries. And I have roughly 22 years of medical experiences as a, a girl and a young woman, and that's relevant. And if my marker is changed, if my name is changed without my medical provider being aware, this is how many surgeries you've had, these are all the complications you've had, et cetera, and I get into a medical situation where I cannot advocate, they're going to assume that I'm a biological male. And how you would treat a biological male and how you would treat somebody like me medically is totally different. Totally different. There's, there's so many differences, I can't even list them all. But it's really important to me as well because I think there's a sense among young trans people that we can just be trans. Like, we don't actually have to be men or be women. We can just go and be trans. And on a social level, I think that's true. But in terms of our mental health, in terms of how we go through the world, our sense of ourselves as men or women with a different experience is so important. And I remember uh, being in the hospital recently for a routine surgery. And because I had not gotten my insurance information changed over, they kept calling me by my birth name and calling me she. And I mean, that's what was listed. I, I expected that. But 
the experience of not being recognized as a trans person can be very dehumanizing. And I think that biology is important, but I also think that recognizing that trans and other experiences are separate, if that makes sense. So I, I think that's important too, because the experiences of trans people, I mean, there are there are trans people who are focused on quote unquote passing and on eroding boundaries around sex-based rights and declaring trans women are women, trans men are men. But they do have their own unique experiences, just like we have our own. Like mm -hmm. women have experiences that are for women, men have experiences that are for men, and trans people have their own unique experiences. And I think for those of us who feel like our boundaries are being threatened by the trans rights movements, I think that's a lot more calming, right? Is like, yeah, you know, have your own experience, name your own experience, but don't say that your experience is the same thing as mine. Um, I, gosh, there's so many things I, I want to talk about, uh, but we we only have so much time, and you've been so vulnerable already. I have. A couple of directions to potentially go in. Maybe you can help guide which sure. way we go. So one is I'm curious about, um, you know, before the interview, you said there's nothing off limits and that um, that you would be willing to talk about your suicide attempt and your mental health recovery. Um, that's something I'm curious about. I'm also really curious, given how much you're on the margins of these different communities, how do you bridge these worlds between, on the one hand, having friends who are trans and identifying as trans yourself, on the one hand, having friends who are D-trans, friends who are gender critical, talking to people like me who many members of the trans community uh, consider, you know, hateful transphobic bigots. How how do you do this world bridging? <laughs> so, so to answer your question about the world bridging. Um, yeah. I've been walking between worlds my entire life. So starting from the age of five, being the little disabled kid and being the little like kind of ambassador. I, I was literally for about a year an ambassador for, for a disabled charity and having to be the face and having to be approachable and having to, you know, talk to people that I don't always agree with and hear other people's opinions. And I realized from being in these echo chambers, these social justice -y kind of echo chambers, but they're like boring, you know? When I'm out in the world and I'm with other people, I wanna meet everybody. I wanna be around everybody. I wanna hear all the perspectives and, and I wanna get to know people on a human level because I'm a human being. That's always been, you know, the, the, the place that I've come from, even as a trans person, I am a human being first. And that's, that's really, bridges are so important because Human beings are not meant to be isolated. We're not meant to be disconnected from other people. We're not meant to be sort of out on our own, flung out, you know, in, into the fringes and making it on our own. We're meant to be with people. And so it was always really important to me from the time I was a small child to make those bridges and expose people to something that they may not have had exposure to. I think about how loneliness shaped you and how much you really, you don't take human relationships for granted. 
you, no, I you don't. cherish them and um what do you, what do you think of the idea of transphobia that word what it means to people I think it still exists do I think it exists to the degree that trans activists think it exists no I don't I think real transphobia is um social attitudes that that force people like me or try to force people like me into medicalization because they can't wrap their minds around the fact that I am living as a man without having the medical piece. I think that's real transphobia. I think um, the the discrimination and the murder rate that trans people face in non-Western countries, for example, is terrible. I think the things that we have to do as a community sometimes to survive, um, things like, um, you know, working in the sex trade. I think that is that being not being able to coexist in the world as a trans person and do it safely and do it effectively and, and have a full happy life. That to me, when you have to use your transness as your way to survive, that's transphobic because most trans people just want to be seen. And I just want to be seen as a, a, a normal person, a guy like everybody else. And this this consistent um, this consistent focus on my transness is the only thing about me. That's transphobic, you know. Like this, the feeling that I don't have anything to me other than I'm a trans person. I'm struggling to transition. I'm I'm this. I'm that. You know. My life is so much richer than my transition. My transition is a piece of my life, but it is not every part of my life. And I think a lot of what is going on in trans spaces and among trans activists is really, really concerning in terms of what rights do we as transsexuals have, for example, to access um, hormones and surgeries or legal documentation. Like all the stuff that trans activists are doing could lead to real transphobia where we're not able to get the care that we feel that we need, you know. But I, but I don't think it's as simple as, oh, you called someone a woman when you should have used the phrase birthing person. That's not, that's not transphobic. It's not transphobic to acknowledge my biology. It's transphobic to not acknowledge my biology. It's transphobic to not acknowledge that I spent the first two decades of my life as a female and as a woman, and now I'm living differently and I'm living trans as it were. I don't see anything wrong with acknowledging where I came from and how I started. I hope that answers your question. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. How do you how do you deal with the tension between on the one hand wanting to live and be seen as a man and knowing that some people never will see you that way? It's difficult for me. It's very, very difficult because for me to be seen as a man is so much more than just 
hormones and surgeries and appearing to you like a mammy. It's about recognition. It's about respect. Respect as a as a son, as a husband, as a father to kids someday. Like those are more universal men's experiences. And and I know that not everybody is gonna see me the way that I see myself. But I think that's okay, to be honest, you know. If if they're willing to at least hear me out and have a conversation with me, just like the one that we're having right now, that's okay. Like I'll take it. If they're willing to sort of step across the bridge that I'm trying to build mm-hmm. and see me as a human being, that's okay. I, I don't need everybody to see me as a man 100% of the time. I don't need mm-hmm. everybody to affirm me all the time. It's just not, it's not realistic, but it's also not necessary. You know, if I look at it as a mental health condition rather than as something that I do, I'm responsible for managing the effects of my own mental health condition. Not you, and not mm-hmm. other women, and not the rest of society. Mm-hmm. I'm an individual making a choice, you know. Do you think it's, well, there's a two-part question. Do you think <laughs> it's possible that you could grow out of or overcome gender dysphoria naturally? And if it were possible, would you want that outcome? I hope every day that it is possible. I would give anything to get up tomorrow morning and be comfortable living as a woman. I, I, I can't even express to you, mm-hmm. like this, this, this uh, attitude that a lot of trans people have that they would never not want to be a trans. Mm-hmm. I don't have that because all I've ever wanted to be is normal. Like even from the time I was small, being a little disabled kid and wanting to be able-bodied, like that's the same feeling. And a lot of my experiences in my transition are that same feeling of looking at other people, experiencing the thing that I want and recognizing that I'm never going to have it. And it's it's something that I wish I could just not be, to be honest, that I could just not experience. That you could not experience gender dysphoria and just wake up in the body that you have mm-hmm. and be okay. Yeah. Yeah, and and a lot of those feelings, I mean, if you're willing to have me talk about it, if we have the time, a lot of those feelings contributed uh, to my suicide attempt as well. Okay. Um, let's go there. I don't I don't have a ton of time, but I this is a really important conversation. Yeah. Um By the time I was uh, 22, something else had happened to me to sort of uh, complicate my life and complicate my response to to everything that was going on with me. And it was that my um, older brother actually ended up dying in a car crash when I was 18. So I go through all of the things that I've gone through up until the age of 18. I stop with the self-harming. I stop with the eating disorder. I'm in a better place than I've ever been in my life. I get into college and everything is looking up for me. And I graduate high school on a Monday and he had come home to see me graduate and uh, was driving home the next day and ended up uh, falling asleep at the wheel. And I go into college as the kid whose brother died. And so my first two years of college were 
horrible. I should not have been in school. I was not functioning as a human being. Um, and my roommates at the time said to me, you need to go see a therapist. So I went and saw a psychotherapist and he basically put me back together. He got me on antidepressants. He got me on mood stabilizers. He did all of this sort of stuff to get me functioning. But at the same time, because I was entering into these new relationships and having these intimate experiences, my gender dysphoria was intensifying to levels that I had never felt it before. And I realized quite quickly, oh, you know, if I had the choice, I would want to live as a man. I would want to be a, a, a man, even if that's a trans man, I'll take it. But the trans activists that I was, that I was uh, talking to and meeting and, and learning from all said to me, the only way that you can be trans is if you medically transition. You can't, you can't be a trans person and not medically transition. You can't, you can't do that. So I have these two, two unsolvable problems, one of which is my brother's death and the other one of which is the, the idea that I want to transition. And I've watched my parents lose their son. And by the time I hit 22, day after my 22nd birthday, I reached a mental place of being like, I don't want my parents to lose their daughter and I don't want to have to transition because it's going to be experimental. I'm not going to have any kind of life. And I basically snapped um, and I attempted suicide and I almost died. And I got up the next morning, um, grateful to be alive and decided that I was going to try just social transition to see would it work because I was, I was terrified. I had no model for a transition like mine and no idea if it was going to work and no idea what my family was going to say. And I decided that they were so grateful that I was alive that it really didn't matter. And I just needed to sort of set everything that I was worried about to the side and see if it worked. And it's because I made that decision at 22 that I am sitting here in front of you. Wow. So you almost ended things and that made it clear what your priorities were. And to, to what extent do you feel like, I mean, because I, I just see so many different kinds of psychological strength in you. And so it's hard to parse out what piece did what for you. Um, you also had a good a therapist and medications and you're in a complex grieving process at the time. So given all those many factors, it's hard to parse out, but to what extent do you feel like just the social transition was what alleviated your suicidal distress versus those, those other pieces? The social transition had the most effect on my suicidal distress. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't eliminate it, right? But it definitely alleviated it to a degree where I've created a life for myself that I don't ever want to leave. I don't ever want to go back to that place. And that is, <laughs> that is the ideal social transition. I mean, social transition, legal transition, medical transition, all these things are psychological interventions designed to make your life better. And if they're not making your life better, then you shouldn't be doing them. But in my case, 
I had had years and years and years of thinking and talking to other people and experimenting with presentation and doing all these non-invasive things that I felt like I've given this the old college try. You know, I've really tried to sort of make peace. And if this doesn't work, it doesn't work, but I have to try. And transition has enriched my life. It hasn't, it hasn't made it 100% wonderful all the time. I mean, nobody's life is, but it's enriched my life and improved my life in a way that I could never have predicted. And I honestly don't think that I could have made this choice as a child or as a teenager. So when I hear trans activists saying to me, oh, if I don't transition, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die by suicide. I look at them and I'm like, no, if you don't get your priorities straight and you don't try therapy and you don't try other things and you lean too much on what transition could be for you, that would be a situation where you might feel motivated to, to attempt something like that. But transition is not a panacea. It's not something that is going to make all your problems go away. It, it is what you make it. And you have to go into it with the right mindset. And I get up every morning so grateful that I had the experience of actually having that really severe, intense, emotional attempt because I'm so grateful for my life. I'm so grateful that I have the ability to go and go by a, a male name and get my sex marker changed and just be in the world. You know, it, it's the thing that I wanted as a, as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult. I get to do that now. And I get to do it in a way where I'm not expecting anything of you. You're not expecting anything of me. We're just people connecting with each other. And it's just been, it's been amazing. <laughs> wow. How, how has your wife been throughout all of this? She is my number one cheerleader. She, she is, she's the person that said to me, you're miserable. I think you need to transition like full time. She's the person that said to me, go and talk to your parents about it. She helped me to, you know, find a therapist and, and do all this other, all this other stuff to sort of keep me functioning. And she also gave me something that, I mean, everybody needs, which is unconditional love. And understanding. Mm -hmm. I thought of myself for such a long time as like a, a degenerate, like like a deviant, like I'm never going to have any kind of life and I'm a freak and I have this mental disorder that I can't fix. And what kind of woman wants to be a man in the first place? You know, and she just looked at me and said, you're a man like any other man. You look a little different. Your life is a little different, but I don't see you as anything other than what you know yourself to be. And that kind of affirmation is really, really important. It's not unquestioning affirmation. It's not blind affirmation. It's affirmation that says, I love you and I want you to be happy and healthy and, and live your best life, you know. But it, she didn't put any pressure on me to medicalize either. That's, that's another thing. Um, she's for it if I'm for it. If I tell her, yeah, this is what I want to do. She's by my side, but she's not like everybody else in the trans conversation, sort of pushing me one way or the other. She's on my team. 
Since you have been in this loving relationship with her, has it at all changed the way that you're able to be present in your body when you're intimate with her? Or do you still have that intensity of sex dysphoria the same as you did in your previous relationship? The sex dysphoria is not nearly as intense intimately because I've asked her like a thousand times, do you see me as a woman or do you see me as a man? Because for me to be seen as a man, that's everything to me. Like to, to be recognized is everything to me. And I think a lot of guys, whether they're trans or not, you know, they want to be seen as masculine. They want to be seen as handsome and, and everything that goes along with that. But she said to me, I'll respect your boundaries. I see you as a man. Your body is your body and I love you. And I love your heart more than I love your body. And your heart didn't change with your transition, so we're cool. And she said to me, do you ever want um, genital reconstruction, like lower genital reconstruction? And I said, no, I don't ever want. Because for me, I I can't even really walk very well. So it doesn't really make sense for me to have something that doesn't work the way I need it to work. She was like, thank God. And I said, are you cool with testosterone? Are you cool with a double mastectomy? She's like, yeah, I don't, I don't care about it. I just don't want you to have that particular surgery. So she's someone that sort of understands what she needs to understand in order to support me. But she doesn't care about the rest. She said to me, you know, you're not allowed to leave me again. <laughs> you're not allowed to go anywhere. So as long as I'm here and I'm surviving and thriving, She's on my team, and she helps tremendously. Mm-hmm. That close relationship is so precious to you, and that's that's such a big part, I think, of what we all need is is to have that depth of closeness with at least one person. Mm-hmm. And you know, the I've shared my opinions on the uselessness and the you know how counterproductive it is to spend much energy trying to c- control the way other people see you and it seems like for you you don't need to control the way other people see you you just needed to make that decision for yourself about how you wanted to live your life and how what's going to work for you in your closest relationships and right. having that close relationship with her and the shared culture between the two of you and how you conceptualize gender, it gives you the strength to deal with a world where you are a person living with gender dysphoria who's who doesn't have access to medical technologies that you can actually put your faith in because you and I have both done our research on the, the problems with those medical technologies. And in a world where you may never be seen as male by everyone, but you have that close relationship and you have this mental fortitude that makes it okay. I'm curious if you can share what's been helpful about therapy, what your therapist has done well, and what you think therapists ought to do uh, in and, and how to think about gender dysphoria. So the number one thing that my my therapists have done either, you know, in the past or in the present, because I'm not currently seeing a therapist, but I have enough therapeutic experience to kind of answer your question. Um, the first thing that you don't want to do if you have a client with 
sex dysphoria is unquestionably affirm them. Because underneath the sex dysphoria, I'm not saying that sex dysphoria is not a real issue or that it's not an issue that needs to be addressed, because it does. But underneath the sex dysphoria is a whole person with a whole set of behaviors and attitudes and ways of being. And I think unquestionable affirmation has done me the most harm. I actually went to a gender therapist and tried to get diagnosed with gender dysphoria as per the DSM. And I said to that individual, you know, I'm looking to get assessed. I have social transition and legal transition under my belt, and I'd like to be properly evaluated. And their response was, I don't do evaluations. I don't do assessments, but are you interested in starting hormones? Because I can write you a hormone letter. And I said, I'm terminating this relationship because you're not willing to respect that whatever affirmation you're offering me, I'm rejecting. So that would be the first piece, which is don't unquestionably affirm. And the second piece, I think, which is you know universal sort of with all therapeutic techniques, is take a take a holistic approach. You know, don't just ask the person about their gender or their dysphoria, but ask them, how's your nutrition? How is your sleep? How are your relationships? What do you like to do? Are you experiencing any kind of depression or anxiety? Because after my brother died, like that was that was the psychotherapy that I received. Like somebody that really was holistic and really looked at me as a human being and said, tell me what is going on with you and let me help you. And let's let's put you back together and get you functioning. And he said to me, you need, you need a routine, you need to sleep, you need to eat well, you need to connect with other people. You know, general mental well-being is as important for trans people as it is for everybody else. And hormones and surgeries add psychological stress. They don't, they don't decrease it. So I hope that answers your wow. question. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. I... There's so much that we've explored in this conversation that I, I I can't imagine anyone else being in a position to speak on in the way that you have. You just have such a unique life experience and perspective, and I really thank you for sharing. This is this is definitely going to give me a lot of food for thought, and I imagine a lot of food for thought for our listeners as well. Um, and I appreciate how we we talked about such vulnerable stuff today, and I, I could see the vulnerability and the emotion. But also I can see that you have some ways of kind of remaining integrated and, and grounded throughout that process. I'm really happy to have heard today, somewhat during our conversation recorded, but also somewhat before we start recording today, that you do feel like you're in such a great place. Um, so uh, what are you up to now and where can people find you? Um, I am still writing, still tweeting. Uh, I'm working on a piece that should be out on my Substack within the next you know, month or so. Um, and that Substack is called Self-Made Renegade. If you go to my Twitter account, uh, which is at Jamie underscore speaking, you'll find uh, the link to my Substack as well as a bit of my life story that we discussed here. And I mean, I hope that's all the information. I'm sure you're going to put it in the yeah. show notes, but I will put it in the show notes, but just to make sure we're covering all the bases, you spell Jamie, J-A-Y-M-E, right? Yes, yes. Okay. You'll know it because it is spelled differently. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Well, this has been a really um, mind-expanding conversation. Thank you again for your courage and your vulnerability. I'm glad you're here um, and that you are a bridge, a, a world bridger, an outlier, someone who has learned not to take health or relationships for granted. Um, you have a lot of wisdom to offer. And I know you had to grow up fast, but I hope that now that you've gotten to a good place as an adult that you can maybe go back and have some of some of that playfulness and lightness that you didn't get to have as a child because you deserve that as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, my life now is so playful and fun and happy, which is the goal. You know, oh, good. That's, that's the goal. So. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, Get outside and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.